1: Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 372. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. This show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. Cloud services, hosted exchange, and offsite backups are compliant with UK Data Protection Act. Octagon Technology, 1995 to 2015. 20 years of helping people and companies with IT projects and problems. Go on there. Thank you, Clive and Diane. So, what a show we have today. What a show. I'll tell you what's coming in. First up, we have a little short fiction, The Universe Reef by Tobias S. Bickell. Then we have the fact article, which is Science News by our very own Mr. J.J. Campanella. Then the main fiction is Consumona Angels by Norman Spinrad. Then we have Poetry Planet and on Poetry Planet this way you'll hear the second part of the Elgin 2014 Award Showcase. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So first up, we'll jump into a little bit of short fiction by Tobias S. Bikel. I mean, I've interviewed Tobias a, a couple of times, I think, and, but I'll give you like a little kind of bio so you just kind of anyone new to Tobias, which is a fantastic writer who doesn't know of him. Tobias S. Bikel is a New York Times best-selling author born in the Caribbean, group in Grenada and spent his time in the British and US Virgin Isles, which influenced much of his work. His novels and over 50 stories have been, been translated into 17 different languages. His work been nominated for the awards such as the Hugo, the Nebula and the Prometheus and the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Science Fiction Author. He curr- currently lives in Bufflin. Lufton, should I say, Ohio with his wife and twin daughters, a pair of dogs, and you can found that com. This story is narrated by Nobles Reed. Noblis Reed is the host of Noblus Erotica Podcast, the best speculative fiction erotica podcast in the known universe. He is also the author of Monster Whisperer Serial and the editor of two anthologies for Coming Together. A publisher that donates all proceeds to charity. You can find his website at nobliserotica.com. Links are on there to Tobias and Noblis. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Universe Reef by Tobias S. Bikel.
1: Jackson buckles his leathers tighter and pulls on a fur. The height causes that cold, he shouts. We're like mountaineers! I want to flee the bitter cold and escape the wind, which seems to pierce my skin and scrub my bones. But I don't want to miss seeing the stone table with my own eyes. We're standing out on a catwalk that juts out from the skin of the airship and connects to the giant propellers on either side of the mid-belly area. The large blades are still, as the captain has found us a current of air. To save fuel we're drifting, occasionally correcting our course, when engines to the rear of the whale-like, lighter-than-air machine roar to life. Underneath our feet, a mile of air, and then below that is the brown, rippling mass of the reef. Once upon a time, there was no reef. The world looked vastly different. There are preserved pictures of this time, spirited away from the museums before they fell to the reef. But more than we can ever remember, will always be trapped where they were stored in great cities of legend like Paris, London, or Washington, where great men once had great adventures. What history legend and archaeologists agree on was that something split the sky asunder, and the debris that rained down from above was not just meteorite, Something else struck the earth and the water. It was a reef. Tiny beings that deposited tiny skeletons, which were built on and ossified, an entire ecosystem accreted around them. And more alien organisms flowered around the reef, all hiding away inside the remains of the rocks that fell. The alien flora spread across the ground and left oceans alone. The reef ate cities as it spread across the world, seeking out metal with a hunger that no one could quench. Our ancestors fought it. Men from a different time, from those old nations, with those old technologies, unleashed hell upon the reef. And sometimes they would slow it. Sometimes they would even kill it. But it always came back. It was the reef, inexorable and implacable. It reshaped the world. Jackson Smithick is an adventurer. Those thick dreadlocks of his are growing gray with age, and his face is leathery from exposure to the sun. He was the first person, post-collapse, to sail across the Atlantic, back to skirt the reef-choked coasts of Africa, down to the Cape, and then sail out to make contact with the Indian and then Pacific Islands. Because it was only the smaller islands that survived the reef, isolated by the ocean and far from the reef's continental creep because it was only the smaller islands that survived the reef, isolated by the ocean and far from the reef's continental creep. Seventy years after his teenage captaincy and exploits, Smithick's Jamaican clippers roam the world oceans, connecting the world. And now, thanks to the advances of steam and steam-powered airships by the Icelandic Empire, Smithick transport ships explore the skies. There it is! Smithick shouts. A gray wall rises out of the reef, which covers what was once the land of South America, and above the stone table rises the tower. I follow the bulk of the structure. It is too much. It is a mountain in the distance that tapers off to a needle that pierces the clouds and keeps going. This is what the reef was for, Smithick yells into my ear. His eyes gleam. Over some strong Blue Mountain coffee, back inside where it was warm, Smithick tells me. Pre-reef scientists had a theory called panspermia. They believed life on Earth was caused by small organisms aboard comets thrown from collisions in other solar systems, crashed down to seed life here, and maybe elsewhere. So a follow-up infection, that's not so hard to believe, yeah? I nodded and kept notes. I'd been paid to document his first trip to actually step onto Stone Table, since Smithic's adventurers had found it and reported back. We land on the massive reef-grown artificial stone structure and moor the airship. The joint Japanese and Hawaiian expedition group and the Iceland scientists who'd beat them there greet us. Pictures are taken with the excited scientists and the man who'd funded the first expedition to Stone Table found when Caribbean telescopes had spotted the slowly self-assembling tower to space. We can't say if the reef is designed to create the tower, programmed by some distant intelligence, the scientists say to Smithick as I scribble. It could be just the way the reef reproduces, creating a way to fling its spores back into space. But the stone table and the grooves in the tower shall allow us to climb it with a machine into space. Doesn't that prove it's made for intelligence? Smithic asks. Sometimes nature builds something something else can use. Maybe it's hoping we'll spread reef spore as we use this to get into space. As if we were bees, Smithic nods. Late in the night I stand with Smithic at the base of the tower, looking up at the night sky. Pre-reef men once walked on the moon, he says. And do you think we'll go back? Whether we're part of some galactic ecosystem that the reef is just a spore of, or whether something designed it, the more we explore out there, the more we'll understand what happened down here. The great adventurer dies that night, but his spirit lives on in the mythic ascender, a plan by the international scientists to build a steam-powered climber that will ascend the tower to space. What we will find, no one knows.
2: Don't forget, copyright is Tobias. Tobias, thank you so much, sir. I hope you're doing well. And Noblesse Reed, thank you thank you very much. <laughs> I can give you a big hug sometimes, sir. Thank you. So next up is the fact article, and it is Science News by our very own Mr. J.J. Campanella. Jim, sir. Greetings and resolute deliberations, my voraciously
3: cerebral listeners, and welcome to this January 2015 Science News Update. I'm your host for this adorably naive science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Happy New Year. I pray thee that thou'st new annuum exceeds the preceding one by many a degree, or something like that. The first story of the night is especially for all of you. Uh, Including me, who have made a resolution for this year that you will exercise more and get in fantastic shape. I wish it was that easy. This story may explain why so many people abandon the gym after a couple of weeks. I've known many people in my life who love to exercise. They're highly motivated and they go to the gym several days a week or run for miles a day. My younger sister falls into this category. She runs a couple of miles every day and has competed in many road races, including marathons. I, however, have lacked this motivation since about the time that, well, high school ended, which is many a decade ago now. It turns out that for wild mice and for some humans like my sister, going for a run can be naturally enjoyable. Now researchers seem to be, well, one step closer to figuring out why it is enjoyable for some people and not for others. Dr. Eric Turner of the Seattle Children's Research Institute's Center for Integrative Brain Research has identified a small area deep in the brain whose absence turns active mice into couch potatoes. Ah, my mouse brethren! Turner's work is described in this month's latest issue of the Journal of Neuroscience. In the new study, Turner's team created conditional knockout mice lacking the nuclear transcription factor BM3A. Now, that is a molecule that's involved in neuronal development, and it's been studied for many years. They shut it off in the dorsal media habendula. And the loss of this protein, BM3A, during neuronal development, during brain development, wiped out neurons in that particular area. So these mice were born without the dorsal media habendula. Now, originally, Turner planned to study the DMH's role in the sleep-wake rhythm. However, he says, quote, The first thing we noticed about the mice with no DMH is that they just ran a whole lot less. We did a battery of behavioral tests and found that the animals could move and balance normally. They just didn't like to run or drink sugar water or really do much of anything, unquote. Ah, so in short, he made couch potato mice. Turner then took new technology to create something called optogenetic mouse mutants. Now, in an optogenetic mutant, you can actually use light to turn cells in a brain area on or off, and you can then use that to confirm that a particular area is involved in a particular motivation. One set of those mice could choose to activate the dorsal media habendula by turning a small wheel with their paws, which in turn activated the light in the brain, which then activated that particular area of the brain. So, those mutant mice actually preferred the wheel that activated the dorsal media habendula over the one that didn't. So the couch potato mice found that by activating the DMH, they were rewarded, just like humans who exercise feel they're rewarded by the actual process of exercise. Ergo, the medial dorsal habendula must be involved in brain reward for exercise. Ta-da. Um, I think that my DMH is way underdeveloped, or perhaps not there, or perhaps it just goes away as you age. I don't know. One of those things. Anyway, next story. The Kardashian Index. Seriously, you're thinking, is he really going to talk about the Kardashians? Just be patient a moment. I came across this particular research article by accident. It was in the December issue of the journal Genome Biology. And frankly, I'm not entirely sure why it was in that journal at all. I mean, at first, I thought it was some kind of a joke. Until I actually read it and realized that these people were semi-serious. The paper is by Neil Hall of the University of Liverpool and is entitled, The Kardashian Index, A Measure of... Discrepant social media profile for scientists. Now, if that doesn't catch your eye in a table of contents, nothing will. Essentially, Hall says that Kim Kardashian and her ilk are famous simply for being famous. They have contributed little or nothing to society, and yet their blogs and tweets are read by uncounted millions who hang on their every word. Hall says, quote, so you could say that her celebrity buys success, which buys greater celebrity. Her fame has meant that comments by Kardashian on issues such as Syria have been widely reported in the press. Sadly, her interjection on the crisis has not yet led to a let-up in the violence, unquote. So what does this silliness have to do with science? Hall states that he is worried that there are now celebrity scientists who have done little or no real science, but have become major figures in the world of science. He states, quote, I am concerned that phenomenon, similar to that of Kim Kardashian, may also exist in the scientific community. I think it is possible that there are individuals who are famous for being famous, or, to put it in scientific jargon, renowned for being renowned. We are all aware that certain people are seemingly invited as keynote speakers, not because of their contributions to the published literature, but because of who they are, unquote. Uh, Let's assume he is not talking about me. I think I can prove my bona fides, if needed, okay? So what did Turner do to examine if his hypothesis can be supported? He selected research scientists and recorded their number of Twitter followers. He picked 40 random genomic scientists and obtained their citation metrics. In other words, how often they were cited, their, their papers were cited. He picked only individuals who have been on Twitter for some time, and he deliberately overlooked people who were on major genomic papers, like the first Human Genome Project, because that would overinflate the citation scores. He also captured whether the scientists were men or women. He then plotted the number of citations against the number of Twitter followers of each of these scientists. And his results found that there is a positive trend in scientific value when compared with that of celebrity. In other words, usually those scientists who are valued for being scientists were also valued for their Twitter feeds. Additionally, Turner calculated what he called the Kardashian index or the K index. A high K-index is a warning to the community that Researcher X may have built their public profile on shaky foundations, while a very low K-index suggests that a scientist is being undervalued. Turner proposes, quote, that those people whose K-index is greater than five can be considered scientific Kardashians, unquote. And he suggests that he has found a number of them in his study, although he does not name names. He finishes with this, quote, I propose that all scientists calculate their own K-index on an annual basis and include it in their Twitter profile. Not only does this help others decide how much weight they should give to somebody's 140-character wisdom, it can also be an incentive. If your K-index gets above 5, then it's time to get off Twitter and write those scientific papers unquote. Out of curiosity, I did calculate my own K-index using my Facebook follower number. I don't tweet. I came up with a number way below five, close to Turner's, which is about one. So I'm feeling a bit undervalued today. Uh, What can I say? Next story. Do you like to play poker? No, I've played. But I've never gotten very serious because I'm extraordinarily risk averse when it comes to betting. I'm just not a big gambler. Now, we know that computers have been used to beat humans at games like chess, where the sheer number of calculations that the computer can do per second can overwhelm even a master class human chess player. But what about a game like poker? We're talking a very complex human game which not only takes into account chance itself, but the very human process of bluffing and reading of other players. Is it possible for a computer to play world-class poker? Well, according to a new article in the latest issue of the journal Science this month, the answer is very much yes. Dr. Michael Bowling headed up a team of computer scientists from the University of Alberta to answer, well, that very question. Several, quote-unquote, perfect information games where both contestants can see everything on the board before making a decision have been solved. And those games include Family Favorites, Checkers, Chess, Tic-Tac-Toe, even Connect Four. But to this point, imperfect information games where the players don't have full knowledge of past events have remained, well, elusive. Bowling says, quote, Poker has been a challenge problem for artificial intelligence going back over 40 years. And until now, heads-up limit Texas Hold'em poker was unsolved, unquote. Now, if you look at the statistics and the variants, heads-up limit Texas Hold'em is actually the smallest variant of poker, possessing only 3 times 10 to the 17th possible states placing it between Connect 4 and checkers in complexity. But due to the imperfect nature of the game, many states cannot be distinguished by players, creating additional complexity when it comes to finding a solution. Bowling and his colleagues employed a, quote, counterfactual regret minimization algorithm, or CFR, to solve this problem. The CFR is an iterative method wherein, quote, through repeated rounds of self-play between two regret-minimizing algorithms, an equilibrium can be determined for the best utility of play, unquote. If you understand exactly what that means, then more power to you. Now, I pride myself on my computer science knowledge, but that is beyond me. I guess simplified to the extreme, the CFR is a learning algorithm that the computer keeps playing until it comes up with the best algorithm to play the game. So to arrive at the perfect poker playing solution, the researchers used 200 computational nodes, dividing the game into 110,565 sub-games on 199 nodes that would feed back continuous updates to a single parental node Bowling explains, quote, the system was trained against itself, playing the equivalent of more than a billion, billion hands of poker. With each hand, it improved its play, refining itself closer and closer to the perfect solution. The computer was trained for two months using 4,000 CPUs, each considering over 6 billion hands every second. This is more poker than has been played by the entirety of the human race, ever, unquote. After 68 days of virtual poker, using a total of 900 core years of computation, the researchers arrived at their answer, effectively solving heads-up limit Texas Hold'em. In short, Bowling's computer can now kick anyone's butt in poker. Uh, yippee. While this computational solution might be a welcome development for, I guess, some poker players and, and probably extremely unwelcome to casinos. And I don't really feel bad for the casinos. The findings themselves actually extend beyond poker. Bowling concludes the article with this quote, the breakthrough behind this result is a general algorithmic advance that makes game-theoretic reasoning in large-scale models of any sort much more tractable in the future, unquote. In other words, watch out. Monopoly is next. Next story. Robert Frost. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. This poetic moment has been brought to you by Global Warming. It's just not getting better. The NOAA, National Climatic Data Center, published their State of the Climate Global Analysis for 2014, just this month. It was more than a bit depressing. For the third time, this relatively new 21st century, the world has set a new record for the hottest year on the books. Last year was the warmest year since scientists started keeping records in 1880 according to the January 16th joint announcement by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and NASA. In 2014, the average global surface temperature measured 0.69 degrees Celsius above the 20th century's average temperature of 13.9 degrees Celsius. The rise makes 2014 the 38th consecutive year with above-average heat In 2010 and 2005, which now tie for the second warmest year, average temperatures were 0.65 degrees above last century's average. Steamy seas seem to largely push 2014 into the record books. Global ocean surface temperatures were the highest ever recorded at 0.57 degrees Celsius, higher than last century's average of 16.1 degrees Celsius. Average temperatures over land ranked the fourth highest on record. Dr. Gavin Schmidt, director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York City, said in a press conference, quote, The trends in greenhouse gases are continuing, and so we may anticipate further record highs in the years to come, unquote. Despite the worldwide warm-up, much of North America saw unusually cool conditions in 2014, Variations in the polar jet stream moved cold air southward in North America and helped cause a particularly cold beginning to the year, which I can vouch dumped feet and feet of snow here in the Northeast. But it doesn't look that good for the future. And at the moment, at least here in the Northeast, again, we have no snow, um, literally no snow here, at least in the uh New York, New Jersey area. It's really quite amazing and quite a worry for me. Well, onward and the downward, I guess. When I was a kid, one of my favorite books was a story called Never Tease a Weasel by Gene Condor Soul, which was designed to teach children not to tease. As the story states, quote, never tease a weasel because a weasel will not like it and teasing isn't nice, unquote. What the story didn't say was that a weasel will likely bite your hand off if you annoy it. Well, you may want to not tease a house cat either. Although not as potentially biting as a weasel, a house cat's bite may be extraordinarily harmful. Dr. Brian Carlson A hand surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and his team published their analysis of cat bite severity recently in the Journal of Hand Surgery. Dr. Carlson reviewed every cat bite to the hand that sent an individual to a Mayo Clinic doctor's office or ER from 2009 to 2011. Hands, you see, are the most common target of cat bites. They also have a lot of tendons and joints which lack circulation and thus are prone to bad infections because they are largely unprotected by circulating immune cells. The study included 193 patients, most of whom were treated and released, usually getting oral antibiotics. But 57 patients needed to be hospitalized for an average of three days. More on that in a second. Most people received stronger antibiotics, and very often they were intravenous, and they were monitored in case their conditions worsened. And indeed, 38 patients didn't improve on drugs alone, and they actually needed surgery to remove dead tissue and clean the wound. Carlson says that, quote, surgery might seem like an extreme response to a cat bite, but if the tissue is dead, it's never going to fight the infection. It's just going to be a culture medium for growing bacteria, unquote. The article also states that cat saliva typically contains a microbe called Pasteurella multicida, which is more virulent than staph or strep infections. It's a tough customer, it needs to be taken seriously, Pasteurella infections often require multiple antibiotic treatment, penicillin, tetracycline, or broad-spectrum antibiotics all at the same time. I was particularly taken with this story because years ago, maybe 10 years ago, at a picnic at my home, one of my graduate students was bitten on the hand by my diabetic cat who was having a bout of low sugar. The ironic part was that my student had cat sat for my feline a number of times, but apparently that familiarity meant nothing when low sugar hits. We rushed my poor student to the hospital and she was severely injured and she spent several days with a swollen hand in the hospital undergoing surgery and massive doses of antibiotics. When she recovered from the main infection, she underwent weeks of physical therapy before her hand was even close to normal again. My wife and I felt so horrid about the whole thing, we paid for any hospital bills not covered by my students' insurance. In short, never underestimate a cat bite. They are much more dangerous than you think. If redness and swelling appear from a bite, seek medical attention immediately. Just because it is a small bite or does not appear to be very deep does not mean it is not very serious. Although in the case of my student, it was quite a deep bite. And in fact, my cat hung onto her hand and wouldn't let go until we pried his jaws loose. Not a good situation. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Keep your Kardashian index low. Play something besides Heads Up Limit Texas Hold'em. Never tease a kitty. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
2: There you go, Jim. Always a pleasure. Always, 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 always. Another one I could give a hug to. I give so many hugs away. Virtual hugs. Abundance of them. So, main fiction, and it's by Norman Spinrad. Oh man, there's some history, there's some baggage with Norman, I tell you. Norman Spinrad is the author of over 20 novels, something like 60 short stories collected in half a dozen volumes. The novels and stories have been published in about 15 languages. His most recent novel-length publication in English is He Walked Among Us. His recent book publication in English is Raising Hell. Osama the Gun, Welcome to Your Dream Time and Police State. His most recently written novels are currently available only in French. He's written teleplays including classic Star Trek, The Doomsday Machine and two produced feature films, Druids and La Sirene Rogue. He is a long-time literary critic, sometimes film critic and political analyst and sometimes songwriter. He's recently adapted his novel Greenhouse summer as a theatrical screenplay script he's been president of the science fiction writers of america and world sf he's posted over 30 youtube videos to date now this story is narrated by mike boris
4: as you know every week tony does an introduction of the narrator every three or four stories he always asks for a new bio well most of us don't change our lives every three or four stories It gets pretty hard to come up with new information for Tony to read. And so it was for this story. Tony contacted me, asked if I could read the story, and asked for a new narrator bio. So there I was. Maybe I could invent a new wife, a new location, some new pets. So when I sat down to write up this bio, I found out that there's an easy way to do this. Now, this is not to say that Tony has a template. But when I looked at my bio, it had the same sort of structure. So here, let me walk you through it. By day, Mike is an... This is where you insert some self-deprecating day job, typically in the IT or video game industry. And by night, he can usually be... Insert some sort of artistic endeavour, usually writing poetry, writing books, or sketching obscure urban sculptures. He lives in... This is where you put in either a vague regional location like the Midwest of the United States or the South of England or a popular major city like London or New York. The idea is to capture quaint or edgy. With his... And this is where you put some endearing adjective and a spouse title or name or just a partner name if you're trying to be coy about that sort of thing. And... And here it gets tricky. You put in a number bigger than would normally be considered reasonable, but not so high that you cross the line into creepy, energetic or lugubrious adjective intended to indicate a sense of chaos or otherwise frenetic activity in the home, and some pedestrian pet species, dog or cat, typically. You do get bonus points for listing a string of pets ending with a quirky adjective and exotic pet species, perhaps anarchistic cockatoo. He can be heard on. And here is where you put a lengthy and distinguished list of podcasts, regional theatre productions, etc.
2: And was nominated.
4: Here's where you put a number, more than one, but less than four. After all, let's not get pretentious. Times four. And here's the place where you write down some obscure local award or honour, regardless of the final placement and pertinence to the world of podcasting. Something akin to the Frank Lloyd Wright Student Architecture Award for Primary School Students. He hopes to someday become a... This is where you list a job description revolving around broadcasting, audiobook narration, or voiceover work in general.
2: And looks forward to doing a lot of work for the Starship Sofa.
4: So there you have it. That's my bio. You can fill in the blanks and put in whatever pet names or location or names of spouse or partners, as you wish, as well as some obscure local award or honor, although I did nothing in architecture with Frank Lloyd Wright. So I hope that helps, and I hope it helps the next narrator. But for now, let's get on with the story. Carcinoma Angels by Norman Spinrad At the age of nine, Harrison Wintergreen first discovered that the world was his oyster when he looked at it sideways. That was the year when baseball cards were in. The kid with the biggest collection of baseball cards was it. Harry Wintergreen decided to become it. Harry saved up a dollar and bought 100 random baseball cards. He was in luck. One of them was the very rare Yogi Berra. In three separate transactions, he traded his other 99 cards for the only other three Yogi Berras in the neighborhood. Harry had reduced his holdings to four cards, but he had cornered the market in Yogi Berra. He forced the price of Yogi Berra up to an exorbitant 80 cards. With the slush fund thus accumulated, he successfully cornered the market in Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, and Pee Wee Reese, and became the J.P. Morgan of baseball cards. Harry breezed through high school by the simple expedient of mastering only one subject, the art of taking tests. By his senior year, he could outthink any test writer with his sheet tied behind his back and won seven scholarships with foolish ease. In college, Harry discovered girls. Being reasonably good-looking and reasonably facile, he no doubt would have garnered his fair share of conquests in the normal course of events. But that was not the way the mind of Harrison Wintergreen worked. Harry carefully cultivated a stutter, which he could turn on or off at will. Few girls could resist the lure of a good-looking, well-adjusted guy with a slick line, who nevertheless carried with him some secret inner hurt that made him stutter. Many were the girls who tried to delve Harry's secret, while Harry delved them. In his sophomore year, Harry grew bored with college and reasoned that the thing to do was to become filthy rich. He assiduously studied sex novels for one month, wrote three of them in the next two, which he immediately sold at $1,000 a throw. With the 3000 thus garnered, he bought a shiny new convertible. He drove the car to the Mexican border and across into a notorious border town. He immediately contacted a disreputable shine boy and bought a pound of marijuana. The shine boy, of course, tipped off the border guards, and when Harry attempted to walk across the bridge to the States, they stripped him naked. They found nothing, and Harry crossed the border. He had smuggled nothing out of Mexico and in fact had thrown the marijuana away as soon as he bought it. However, he had taken advantage of the Mexican embargo on American cars and illegally sold the convertible in Mexico for $15,000. Harry took his $15,000 to Las Vegas and spent the next six weeks buying people drinks, lending broke gamblers money, acting in general like a fuzzy-cheeked Santa Claus, gaining the confidence of the right drunks, and blowing $5,000. At the end of six weeks, he had three hot market tips, which turned his remaining $10,000 into $40,000 in the next two months. Harry bought 400 crated government surplus Jeeps in four 100 Jeep lots of $10,000 a lot and immediately sold them to a highly disreputable Central American government for $100,000. He took the $100,000 and bought a tiny island in the Pacific so worthless that no government had ever bothered to claim it. He set himself up as an independent government with no taxes and sold 21-acre plots to 20 millionaires seeking a tax haven at $100,000 a plot. He unloaded the last plot three weeks before the United States, with U.N. backing, claimed the island, and brought it under the sway of the Internal Revenue Office. Harry invested a small part of his $2 million and rented a large computer for 12 hours. The computer constructed a betting scheme by which Harry parlayed his $2 million into $20 million by taking various British soccer pools to the tune of $18 million. For $5 million, he bought a monstrous chunk of useless desert from an impoverished Arabian sultanate. With another $2 million, he created a huge rumor campaign to the effect that this patch of desert was literally floating on oil. With another $3 million, he set up a dummy corporation, which made like a big oil company, and publicly offered to buy this desert for $75 million. After some spirited bargaining, a large American oil company was allowed to outbid the dummy and bought a 1,000 square miles of sand for $100 million. Harrison Wintergreen was, at the age of 25, Filthy rich by his own standards. He lost his interest in money. He now decided that he wanted to do good. He did good. He toppled seven unpleasant Latin American governments and replaced them with six social democracies and a benevolent dictatorship. He converted a tribe of Borneo headhunters to Rosicrucianism, He set up 12 rest homes for overage whores and organized a birth control program which sterilized 12 million fecund Indian women. He contrived to make another $100 million on the above enterprises. At the age of 30, Harrison Wintergreen had had it with do-gooding. He decided to leave his footprints in the sands of time. He left his footprints in the sands of time. He wrote an internationally acclaimed novel about King Farouk, He invented the wintergreen filter, a membrane through which fresh water passed freely, but which barred salts. Once set up, a wintergreen desalinization plant could desalinate an unlimited supply of water at a per-gallon cost approaching absolute zero. He painted one painting and was instantly offered $200,000 for it. He donated it to the Museum of Modern Art, gratis. He developed a mutated virus which destroyed syphilis bacteria. Like syphilis, it spread by sexual contact. It was a mild aphrodisiac. Syphilis was wiped out in 18 months. He bought an island off the coast of California, a 500-foot crag jutting out of the Pacific. He caused it to be carved into a 500-foot statue of Harrison Wintergreen. At the age of 38, Harrison Wintergreen had left sufficient footprints in the sands of time. He was bored. He looked around greedily for new worlds to conquer. This, then, was the man who, at the age of 40, was informed that he had an advanced, well-spread, and incurable case of cancer, and that he had one year to live. Wintergreen spent the first month of his last year searching for an existing cure for terminal cancer. He visited laboratories, medical schools, hospitals, clinics, great doctors, quacks, people who had miraculously recovered from cancer, faith healers, and little old ladies in tennis shoes. There was no known cure for terminal cancer, reputable or otherwise. It was as he suspected, as he more or less even hoped, he would have to do it himself. He proceeded to spend the next month setting things up to do it himself he caused to be erected in the middle of the Arizona desert an air-conditioned, walled villa. The villa had a completely automatic kitchen and enough food for a year. It had a $5 million biological and biochemical laboratory. It had a $3 million microfilmed laboratory, which contained every word ever written on the subject of cancer. It had the pharmacy to end all pharmacies, a literal supply of quite literally every drug that existed poisons, painkillers, hallucinogens, dandrocides, antiseptics, antibiotics, vericides, headache remedies, heroin, quinine, curare, snake oil, everything. The pharmacy cost $20 million. The villa also contained a one-way radio telephone, a large stock of basic chemicals, including radioactives, copies of the Quran, the Bible, the Torah, the Book of the Dead, science and health with key to the scriptures, the I Ching and the complete works of Wilhelm Reich and Aldous Huxley. It also contained a very large and ultra-expensive computer. By the time the villa was ready, Wintergreen's petty cash fund was nearly exhausted. With ten months to do, that which the medical world considered impossible, Harrison Wintergreen entered his citadel. During the first two months, he devoured the library, sleeping three hours out of each twenty-four, and dosing himself regularly with Benzedrine. The library offered nothing but data. He digested the data and went to the pharmacy. During the next month, he tried oramycin, bacitracin, Fluoride, hexylresorcinol, cortisone, penicillin, hexachlorophene, shark liver extract, and 7,312 assorted other miracles of modern medical science. All to no avail. He began to feel pain, which he immediately blotted out and continued to blot out with morphine. Morphine addiction was merely an annoyance. He tried chemicals, radioactives, vericides, Christian science, yoga, prayer, enemas, patent medicines, herb tea, witchcraft, and yogurt diets. This consumed another month, during which wintergreen continued to waste away, sleeping less and less and taking more benzadrine and morphine. Nothing worked. He had six months left. He was on the verge of becoming desperate. He tried a different tack. He sat in a comfortable chair and contemplated his navel for 48 consecutive hours. His meditations produced a severe case of eye strain and two significant words, spontaneous remission. In his two months of research, Wintergreen had come upon numbers of cases where a terminal cancer abruptly reversed itself and the patient, for whom all hope had been abandoned, had been cured. No one ever knew how or why. It could not be predicted. It could not be artificially produced. But it happened nonetheless. For want of an explanation, they called it spontaneous remission. Remission meaning cure, spontaneous meaning no one knew what caused it. Which is not to say that it did not have a cause. Wintergreen was buoyed. He was even ebullient. He knew that some terminal cancer patients had been cured. Therefore, terminal cancer could be cured. Therefore, the problem was removed from the realm of the impossible and was now merely the domain of the highly improbable. And doing the highly improbable was Wintergreen's specialty. With six months of estimated life left, Wintergreen set jubilantly to work. From his complete cancer library, he culled every known case of spontaneous remission. He coded every one of them into the computer. Data on the medical histories of the patients, on the treatments employed, on their ages, sexes, religions, races, creeds, colors, national origins, temperaments, marital status, Dun & Bradstreet ratings, neuroses, psychoses, and favorite beers. Complete profiles of every human being ever known to have survived terminal cancer, were fed into Harrison Wintergreen's computer. Wintergreen programmed the computer to run a complete series of correlations between 10,000 separate and distinct factors and spontaneous remission. If even one factor, age, credit rating, favorite food, anything, correlated with spontaneous remission, the spontaneity factor would be removed. Wintergreen had shelled out $100 million for the computer. It was the best damn computer in the world. In two minutes and 7.894 seconds, it had performed its task. In one succinct word, it gave Wintergreen his answer. Negative. Spontaneous remission did not correlate with any external factor. It was still spontaneous. The cause was unknown. A lesser man would have been crushed. A more conventional man would have been dumbfounded. Harry Wintergreen was elated. He had eliminated the entire external universe as a factor in spontaneous remission in one fell swoop. Therefore, in some mysterious way, the human body and or psyche was capable of curing itself. Wintergreen set out to explore and conquer his own internal universe. He repaired to the pharmacy and prepared a formidable potation. Into his largest syringe he decanted the following, Novocaine, Morphine, Curare, Vlut, a rare Central Asian poison which induced temporary blindness, Olfactor cane, a top-secret smell deadener used by skunk farmers, tympanoline, a drug which temporarily deadened the auditory nerves, used primarily by filibustering senators, a large dose of benzodrine, lysergic acid, psilocybin, mescaline, peyote extract, seven other highly experimental and mostly illegal hallucinogens, Eye of Newt and Toe of Dog. Wintergreen laid himself out on his most comfortable couch. He swabbed the vein in the pit of his left elbow with alcohol and injected himself with the witch's brew. His heart pumped, his blood surged, carrying the arcane chemicals to every part of his body. The novocaine blanked out every sensory nerve in his body. The morphine eliminated all sensations of pain. The vlut blacked out his vision. The olfactor cane cut off all sense of smell. The tympanoline made him deaf as a traffic court judge. The curare paralyzed him. Wintergreen was alone in his own body. No external stimuli reached him. He was in a state of total sensory deprivation. The urge to lapse into blessed unconsciousness was irresistible. Wintergreen, strong-willed though he was, could not have remained conscious unaided. But the massive dose of Benzedrine would not let him sleep. He was awake, aware, alone in the universe of his own body, with no external stimuli to occupy himself with. Then one and two, and then in combinations like the fists of a good fast heavyweight, the hallucinogens hit. Wintergreen's sensory organs were blanked out, but the brain centers which received sensory data were still active. It was on these cerebral centers that the tremendous charge of assorted hallucinogens acted. He began to see phantom colors, shapes, things without a name or form. He heard eldritch symphonies, ghost echoes, mad howling noises. A million impossible smells roiled through his brain. A thousand false pains and pressures tore at him, as if his whole body had been amputated. The sensory centers of Wintergreen's brain were like a mighty radio receiver tuned to an empty band, filling with meaningless visual, auditory, olfactory, and sensual static. The drugs kept his senses blank. The Benzedrine kept him conscious. Forty years of being Harrison Wintergreen kept him cold and sane. For an indeterminate period of time, he rolled with the punches, groping for the feel of this strange new non-environment. Then gradually, hesitantly at first, but with ever-growing confidence, Wintergreen reached for control. His mind constructed untrue but useful analogies for actions that were not actions states of being that were not states of being, sensory data unlike any sensory data received by the human brain. The analogies, constructed in a kind of calculated madness by his subconscious for the brute task of making the incomprehensible palpable, also enabled him to deal with his non-environment as if it were an environment, translating mental changes into analogs of action. He reached out an analogical hand and tuned a figurative radio. "'inward, away from the blank waveband of the outside universe "'and towards the as-yet unused waveband of his own body, "'the internal universe that was his mind's only possible escape from chaos. "'He tuned, adjusted, forced, struggled, "'felt his mind pressing against an atom-thin interface. "'He battered against the interface, "'an analogical translucent membrane between his mind and his internal universe.' a membrane that stretched, flexed, bulged inward, thinned, and finally broke. Like Alice through the looking-glass, his analogical body stepped through and stood on the other side. Harrison Wintergreen was inside his own body. It was a world of wonder and loathsomeness, of the majestic and the ludicrous. Wintergreen's point of view, which his mind analogized as a body within his true body, was inside a vast network of pulsing arteries, like some monstrous freeway system. The analogy crystallized. It was a freeway, and Wintergreen was driving down it. Bloated sacks dumped things into the teeming traffic, hormones, wastes, nutrients. White blood cells careened by him like mad taxicabs. Red corpuscles drove steadily along like stolid burgers. The traffic ebbed and congested like a crosstown rush hour. Wintergreen drove on, searching, searching. He made a left, cut across three lanes, and made a right down toward a lymph node. And then he saw it, a pile of white cells like a twelve-car collision, and speeding towards him, a leering motorcyclist. Black the cycle, black the riding leathers, black, dull black the face of the rider, save for two glowing blood-red eyes. "'and emblazoned across the front and the back of the black motorcycle jacket "'in shining scarlet studs, the legend Carcinoma Angels. "'With a savage whoop, Wintergreen gunned his analogical car "'down the hypothetical freeway straight for the imaginary cyclist, "'the cancer cell. "'Splat! Pop! Crush!' "'Wintergreen's car smashed the cycle "'and the rider exploded into a cloud of fine black dust.' Up and down the freeways of his circulatory system, Wintergreen ranged, barreling along arteries, careening down veins, inching through narrow capillaries, seeking the black-clad cyclists, the carcinoma angels, grinding them to dust beneath his wheels. And he found himself in the dark, moist wood of his lungs, riding a snow-white analogical horse, an imaginary lance of pure light in his hand. Savage black dragons with blood-red eyes and flickering red tongues slithered from behind the gnarled boles of great air-sack trees. Saint Wintergreen spurred his horse, lowered his lance and impaled monster after hissing monster till at last the holy lungwood was free of dragons. He was flying in some vast moist cavern, above him the vague bulks of gigantic organs, below a limitless expanse of shining slimy peritoneal plain. From behind the cover of his huge beating heart, a formation of black fighter planes, bearing the insignia of a scarlet sea on their wings and fuselages, roared down at him. Wintergreen gunned his engine and rose to the fray, flying up and over the bandits, blasting them with his machine guns, and one by one, and then in bunches, they crashed in flames to the peritoneum below. In a thousand shapes and guises, the black and red things attacked. Black the color of oblivion, red the color of blood. Dragons, cyclists, planes, sea things, soldiers, tanks, and tigers in blood vessels and lungs and spleen and thorax and bladder. Carcinoma angels, all. And Wintergreen fought his analogical battles in an equal number of incarnations, as driver, knight, pilot, diver, soldier, mahout, with a grim and savage glee. "'littering the battlefields of his body "'with the black dust of the fallen carcinoma angels. "'Fought and fought and killed and killed and finally... "'Finally found himself knee-deep "'in the sea of his digestive juices "'lapping against the walls of the dank, moist cave "'that was his stomach, "'and scuttling toward him on kittenous legs "'a monstrous black crab with blood-red eyes, "'gross, squat, primeval.' Flicking, chittering, the crab scurried across his stomach towards him. Wintergreen paused, grinned wolfishly, and leaped high in the air, landing with both feet squarely on the hard black carapace. Like a sun-dried gourd, brittle, dry, hollow, the crab crunched beneath his weight and splintered into a million dusty fragments. And Wintergreen was alone, at last alone and victorious the first and last of the carcinoma angels now banished and gone and finally defeated. Harrison Wintergreen, alone in his own body, victorious, and once again looking for new worlds to conquer, waiting for the drugs to wear off, waiting to return to the world that always was his oyster. Waiting, and waiting, and waiting... Go to the finest sanitarium in the world, and there you will find Harrison Wintergreen, who made himself filthy rich. Harrison Wintergreen, who did good. Harrison Wintergreen, who left his footprints in the sands of time. Harrison Wintergreen, who stepped inside his own body to do battle with carcinoma's angels and won and can't get out. <laughs>
2: There you go, don't forget, copyright is Norman's. Norman, thank you so much. A bit of an honour to have one of the kind of legends on the show. Brilliant, thank you so much. And Mike. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Just just classic narration. Oh, man, what a gift. So don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. Being in the business since 1995 to 2015, what an achievement. Thank you so much. Octagon Technology can supply hosted exchange services for companies across the UK and giving responsive, reliable, and reassuring IT support for the Lincolnshire area. There you go. And expanding all the time. Now, the funny thing here, not the funny thing, I was very pleased to have Clive Came actually called on my good self, and I made him a cup of coffee. Yes, it was lovely to kind of see him. He'd been up there, he kind of, big walker, Clive. And he was kind of passing, getting back. He'd been up there, I think it was Avimo. And passing, you know, passing through God's country there. You know I mean? The air's a little bit sweet here. So he was a little bit kind of dizzy and everything, you know, coming into such a rich environment. There. But it was lovely to see Clive was spent an hour together. And actually, I got it all wrong, the dates, because Clive had said it ages ago. Get to, I'll, I'll pop through, I'll be able to, you know, we'll have a coffee. And all oh, right, right, right. Didn't I get my days wrong? And we just booked the night before to see, you know, to take the dogs to these, like it's a, a dog aquatic pool. <laughs> you get the dogs strapped in, into a kind of like life-saving vest, and you kind of put them in a the pool with like a trainer, and they just swim, and there's no bottom to the pool, or the dogs can't touch the bottom. So like, they come out shattered. And it was a great day, that as well. Exactly, if you go on the Facebook, you'll see some pictures. But we'll just book that because there was nothing on. <laughs> because Melanie says, have you got anything on on Saturday? No, no, love, no, anything you want. And then, here, yeah, Clive, like that night, text, don't forget Tony, I'll see you in the morning. I was like, oh, man, man. So bear in mind you know, yes, I'm in the north and Avimos in the north of Scotland, but it's like five and possibly, you know, with the bad rows and all that, maybe a little bit longer. So, and I desperately wanted to see Clive, especially as well, just to thank him, you know, kind of support and kickstart and getting SofaCon off the ground and everything like that. Didn't he have to get up? I don't know what time he got up, mind you. You know, I think you're talking probably half four, something like that. You know what I mean? To get down... To to see us before we shot away at I think it was half twelve, you know, kinda of hour we had to be aware. So, Clive, what can I say? I hope the coffee was fine and I hope the company was fine. But a big thank you for turning up. That was absolutely fantastic. I loved every minute of it. So we have our very own Diane. Like I say, on Poetry Planet this week, you'll hear the second part, because we remember we played the first part of the 2014 Elgin Award. A showcase, this is kind of the the, the portries, you know, the the big old wards there. So, Diane.
0: Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. Today, we'll be returning to the Elgin Museum of Awardland, and I'll fill you in on the winning and placing chapbooks or collections with 40 pages of poetry or less. Before we do that, though, I'd like to correct a mistake I made in the last Poetry Planet, in which I presented the Elgin Award-winning and placing full-length collections. I erroneously placed Janine Hall Gailey's Unexplained Fevers in third place. Demonstra by Brian Tauwara took first place, Unexplained Fevers took second place, and Bruce Boston's Dark Roads was third place. Janine was very gracious about my blunder, but I did want to apologize for it and set the record straight. So, now you know. The Sex Lives of Monsters by Helen Marshall won the award in the chapbook category, and it is truly a wonderful and refreshing collection. Helen Marshall is an award-winning Canadian author, editor, and doctor of medieval studies, and now she can count her chapbook, The Sex Lives of Monsters, among those award-winning works— Additionally, her debut collection of short stories, Hair Side, Flesh Side, from Cheezine Publications, was named one of the top 10 books of 2012 by January Magazine. It also won the 2013 British Fantasy Award for Best Newcomer and was shortlisted for a 2013 Aurora Award by the Canadian Society of Science Fiction and Fantasy. Her second fiction collection, Gifts for the One Who Comes After, is also available from Cheezine Publications. She lives in Oxford, England, where she spends her time staring at old books. The poems in The Sex Lives of Monsters are more about love than sex. They are about how monsters, in their myriad incarnations, love, which is more about longing than anything else, and love for monsters, which is surprisingly beautiful. Marshall's voice is soothing, aching, and sympathetic to the monsters she gives voice to. Some are not monsters of the science fictional sort, but are of a metaphorical nature monstrous, historical figures who could be perceived as monstrous people, like Billy the Kid. The Collected Postcards of Billy the Kid from The Sex Lives of Monsters by Helen Marshall 1. These are the lost years. It was easy for Billy to lose himself in them, tucked away from time, where the earth heaved like a lung, hills breaking to gravel the rocks, shattering pines, and blasting aspen. It was the first time Billy saw snow, and so he sank himself into it, supine, arms spread, and the sun superheating his chest, until he sat up again, saw the angel trace of himself. The desert never held his presence so long. 2. His Path Curved Like a Whip Across the Wasteland He kept Garrett's man behind him, losing him sometimes but waiting patient-like until he saw the black silhouette pinched like dough in the distance. When he was lonely, he imagined walking into that other's camp sharing whiskey, bread, bacon, letting that other clean his gun. Tick, tick, but companionable before one of them blew the other apart. This half-dream was the end of his loneliness, that and the blank of the shadow ten miles away. He would have made a love letter of it if he could. 3. The earth was a scuttling black, glassy, black as an upset anthill. But one evening, as the sky sank into blue gloom, Billy saw the edge of a dead volcano light up red as the tip of his cigarillo, Oh, said Billy, and it was the first time he had spoken in many days. It pleased him that when his principles cracked, it was for the beauty, that bright, burning thing, the end of all. For by then Billy's beard had begun to grow in, and when he caught sight of himself, he was angry. He had been called the kid for so long he was afraid to leave the name behind. After that, he began to shave. He had never done anything religiously before, but that was how he did it. Cold edge running across the skin, catching the blood when he slipped. He refused to leave any piece of himself behind. 5. Sometimes they called him Billy, sometimes a son of a whore, sometimes the devil. It was only this last he protested. But one night he met a man named Beringer, who told him of the crater that hid metal from the sky. They's all want gold, the engineer was reported to have said, before spitting. Billy went to sea, and when he climbed to the bottom, Beringer smiled. It's something, he said, what heaven throws down for us. 6. Billy imagined these things. Lucifer's joyless tumble, the shape of a body thrown down so hard, and the bright bang of the earth lighting up like a firecracker, and sometimes afterward, with his father's gift for clairvoyance, the click of the bullet and him mumbling, Kienes, Kienes, three years down that hard road when Garrett, that damned angel of mercy, would lay him low. In the Off Hours from The Sex Lives of Monsters by Helen Marshall Sometimes I like to imagine the monsters in a perfectly neat waiting room, the type with tasteless beige carpets, last week's tabloid newspapers, and a ficus with leaves limp as a drowned spider. These poor monsters, nervous, checking the dismal minute hand, the dirt under their fingernails, chasing the blonde, except for the roots, receptionist, with jellied stares they cannot help. It would have been the same ad that reeled you monsters in, peeling in the buttered subway light where things like happiness and perfect boners are sold cheap. Maybe it's hormonal, the doctor says, or psychological, or dietary, your um problem. Here is a questionnaire, the doctor says, and the monster pinches it silently between blunt fingers. Poor monster. You never had it easy. Waiting rooms make you uncomfortable. You were made for action. There's something within you so primal that the fresh glare of a full moon sets screaming, but these cool fluorescent lights, these sad monster eyes, meeting over the tops of old news stories, turn you soapy. She tells you, the girl at home, That she loved you for your uncomplicated rage, your pure animal self. But recently, you have been gentled. You are not you. She cannot love what's left over when the moon slivers away into darkness, and it is only you, 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 hairless as a worm, crumpled as the classifieds curled up next to her. Mm. The Edible Zoo placed second among the chapbook candidates for the Elgin Award. The Edible Zoo was nominated for the 2013 Elgin Award and took third place. It's an entertaining collection of animal poems written for children. In each poem, Kapaska-Merkel describes how the animal might taste, what dishes it would go well in, and how best to cook them, if you can manage. Despite the somewhat unconventional fare, the poems never fail to put a smile on faces yours for your adult sensibilities of the absurdity, and the child's for the silliness and the rhymes. David Kapaska-Merkel won the 2006 Reisling Award for Best Long Poem in collaboration with Kendall Evans and edits Dreams and Nightmares magazine. You can find him as David K M on Twitter. I recorded two poems for my review of this chapbook on Amazing Stories, and they were used for last year's Elgin Award Showcase. But David asked me to do Monkey Stew, which he thinks is the best, and Crocodilia. So here you are. Monkey Stew from Edible Zoo by David C. Kopaska-Merkel We went to catch a monkey, it's what we had to do. We were feeling hungry for some monkey stew. Put the water on to boil in the big black pot. Is the monkey in it? No, he's not. The monkey's at the zoo, climbing up a tree. The monkey's at the reptile house with a stolen key. Put the water on to boil in the big black pot. Is the monkey in it? No, he's not. The monkey's in the park. Gator's in the lake. The monkey's playing hopscotch with a garter snake. Put the water on the boil in the big black pot. Is the monkey in it? No, he's not. Silly little monkey, come down from the roof. I merely want to cook you. Don't be such a goof. Put the water on to boil in the big black pot. Is the monkey in it? No, he's not. The monkey's on the TV, talks to Donahue. The monkey answers questions about what we tried to do. Put the water on to boil in the big black pot. Is the monkey in it? No, he's not. The monkey makes a movie. The monkey writes a book. Everybody loves the monkey that we tried to cook. Put the water on to boil in the big black pot. Is the monkey in it? No, he's not. Darn. Hungry again. Crocodilia. From Edible Zoo by David C. Kapaska Merkel. Once I caught a crocodile. I held its tail for a while, but I soon began to see the croc had lunch designs on me. I felt that it was time to choose who would dine and who would lose. So I checked my cookbook pile for recipes for crocodile. Round and round the room we flew, the croc and I, and cookbooks too. The croc suggested person pie. I replied I'd rather die. I countered with crocodile cake my appetite for sweets I'd slake, but the reptile vetoed that told me I was much too fat. The crocodile proposed a truce, and as my grip was getting loose, I acquiesced and said OK, I'll eat mice or frogs today. Mm. Joshua Gage's inhuman Haiku from the Zombie Apocalypse came in third place. Joshua Gage is an ornery curmudgeon from Cleveland. His first full-length collection, Breaths, is available from Van Zeno Press. Intrinsic Night, a collaborative project he wrote with J.E. Stanley, was published by Sam's Dot Publishing. Haiku from the Zombie Apocalypse is available on Poets Haven Press, He is a graduate of the low-residency MFA program in creative writing at Naropa University. He has a penchant for Pendleton shirts, rye whiskey, and any poem strong enough to yank the breath out of his lungs. This slim volume is broken into four sections, or acts, and really does tell a dramatic story. It contains only haiku, of which Gage is a master. You really get a sense of what haiku is and can do, even with the monotheme of zombies. The following is basically what I wrote for my review on Amazing Stories magazine. Because of the nature of haiku, it is so short, and this book really benefits from a blow-by-blow, if you will. The collection begins with a section entitled Genesis, where we briefly glimpse the precursors and telltale signs which lead us to the outbreak in... port The Red Wood of the Coffin. Reflects the torchlight Headless cockerel The broken glass cuts The dancer's lips How does a zombie apocalypse begin? We aren't told in so many words, but that it has begun is obvious Open grave The moonlight glistens On coffin splinters. My heart pounding, the fresh dirt on the grave begins to heave. As what's happening becomes clear, panic ensues, and we are treated to the observer or the hunted's horror from a plethora of angles. Autopsy Lab the twitch and squirm of the body bag. Windows nailed up, my father practices loading his new rifle. Roadside cafe, what's left of the waitress on the menu. Funeral parlor, the drone of her mangled corpse across the keys. The difference between the sections outbreak and invasion is merely how close we are to or involved in the action, but the tone is the same shade. At first, in outbreak, we are still removed from the actual presence of zombies, but the evidence is everywhere. In invasion, contact is imminent. The zombies are right in front of us or we are being or have just been attacked." Rusted car wreck, the driver's rotting arm grabs my wrist. Record skipping, festering bodies shuffle across the dance floor. The last section, entitled Survival, is almost devoid of hope, and just as horrific as what has led us to this point. Fireflies among the lantern flames. Funeral procession. A box of diapers. The thief's screams silenced with a brick. And with that, our visit to the Elgin Museum in Awardland is concluded. Remember that I provide detailed show notes, including links to the poet's collections and my reviews of some of these, with additional recitations on my blog at divadianes.blogspot.com. Next time on Poetry Planet, we'll visit Contestville and listen to the winning poetry of the SFPA's annual contest. Until then, keep it lyrical.
2: There you go, Diane, big thank you as well. And like I say, we're just, I'm trying to sort out as well, Diane is interviewing Kim Stanley Robinson for ShofaCon. For ShofaCon, so, yes, there's a one. Get it kick-started, ShofaCon. So looking forward to that as well. Well, that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Nice, it's a nice big one there, chunky one. Hopefully we'll try and calm it down next week and just have a single one, a single story possibly. So... Don't forget, if you want to kind of support the show, yes, we've got some kind of financial for the Kickstarter, but well, this show's still got to run. And actually, one of the things, I might put an email out, one of the things Clive and myself were talking about was show 400. You know what I mean? Because I thought, what are we on there now? I'm, I'm recording this and I'll just better check. Show 372. <laughs> eh, ever the professional. You know, show four hundred. What should we do something for show four hundred? I was talking to D. Possibly put out a comic. I don't know. Maybe a kind of a a book or something. Something to mark. You know, celebrate show four hundred. Any ideas? I'll put out an email if you're on the email list. I don't think you can get onto it now. I don't think the links there. But I'll uh, drop us an email at at starshipswithatgmail.com if you can think of any cool things we can do for show 400 and of course raise raise bloody funds for the show as well and keep them going there we go until next week just like to say good night from me will our heroes survive this
3: terrible ordeal can they win through with their integrity unscathed can
0: they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship
4: Sofa. Evacuation procedure is Shovel set for Airlock will be in 3, 2,
1: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.